Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. So we're starting a new series. We're going to be looking for the next seven months through the month of July uh, at the book of Ephesians. And in the morning, you know, we're in the series of apologetics and then later after Eastern cultural issues. So tonight, Ephesians. I've got a subtitle there called Unified in Christ Through the Church. We're not unified with Christ by means of the church, but we are unified in Christ and we express that through the church. That's what that means. And it's going to deal with two, the two themes that we'll discuss at the very end. I'm going to do a little preaching, but I'm going to do mostly teaching tonight. I'm going to set the background and the framework for the book of Ephesians. So, identity. Here's where we're going to preach a little bit. Next slide. It is entitled To the Saints. And the reason for that is because that's the way the book starts. We're only going to cover two verses tonight. 40 minutes to cover two verses, but we'll we'll do it pretty thoroughly. Um, You know, most of you know I was a chaplain. I I still am. I still see my identity partly, not identity, but my role as being a chaplain. That's where I was in Washington this past week for a while. Work with Texas Baptist. They endorse uh, almost a thousand chaplains across the globe. I also work with North American Mission Board, and they endorse about two and a half times that many around the globe. A chaplain's responsibility and role is to minister the gospel if they're a Christian chaplain, to walk alongside other people, and to minister to them professionally and also pastorally. Professional side, they are military or health care, whatever. And pastorally, they're ministers in an institution that is not the church. It's secular. It's in a pluralistic setting about which we spoke this morning so that they all can exercise their, uh, have free exercise of religion wherever they are. And they minister to everyone, whether or not they actually perform the religious service for the people or if they can't, they provide it through other people. It's a pretty succinct definition, I think, of what it is to be a chaplain. I'm going to suggest that, in fact, not your identity, but one of your roles for most of you, because most of you do not minister mainly within the context of the church most of the time. Your staff does. But most of you are where? You are in the secular workplace. You're outside the church. Even if, if, even, at, even if you're at the seminary, then you're not in the context of a church there. You're, and it's not as pluralistic there, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> okay. But most of you have relationships, circles of relationships that reach beyond the church. And in that respect, God calls you at one time or another to be a chaplain, to minister in a context that is not strictly within the confines of the church. Okay. 
So one of the things that I tell new chaplains, and I remind myself as an old chaplain and everything in between, is the very first thing that you must do after you have made the commitment and you're commissioned and all of that is you, you must know who you are to minister effectively. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm a dad, I'm a brother, I'm a son, I'm an uncle. No, that's not who you are. Okay? Well, I'm a seminary professor, I'm a teacher, I'm a pastor. No, that's not who you are. You've, you've heard this before. You've heard me say this before. I hope you remember it. Fundamentally, you have to come to grips with what your identity is. And your identity and my identity, we have different ways of describing it. But I think one of the basic ways that I describe myself is I'm a child of God. And we might describe it as a follower of Christ, a disciple. There are many ways to describe that, okay? But we must know what our identity is because when we get out there in the pluralistic world, if we don't know what it is, then what happens is the world then rounds off those edges and smooths us out so that we become vanilla nothings. Does that make sense? I know that's a mixed metaphor. Vanilla's not smooth, but you know what I'm saying. We need to know who we are, and that's part of what we're doing in the, on Sunday morning in the apologetic series, is there are some kind of sharp edges to the gospel, and it is a stumbling block and a scandal, and we need to know how to communicate that effectively, and yet with charity, with love, and with encouragement. So what does that have to do with tonight? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about during the first few sermons, the messages, first eight of these, about our identity that's a step that, that is defined in Ephesians. Okay? So you, you might describe yourself as a child of God, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, whatever. He, he, he calls us ambassadors, for example, ambassadors. That, that, that's an identity. It's not just a role. Okay? So... How does Paul identify the identity of the church? That's a bit different. It's a collection of all people that are in Christ, whatever, but it's a, it's a bit different. And in almost every instance, when Paul, well, in every instance, when Paul writes a church, a local church, he sometimes says to the church at, but he doesn't always, Okay. Every time he writes to a church, when he writes to Timothy, that's not writing to a church. When he writes to Titus and Philemon, it's not writing to a church. When he writes to a church, he uses a, he uses a word, plural word. He writes to them as what? Saints. So our identity as the church and then each one of us in the church, we are hagioi. Hagios is a singular, hagioi. We are Holy. Which means what? He says here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Notice he doesn't mention church there, but what's he talking about? That's the church. And who are faithful, pistos, pistoi, in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to focus on two things after I get finished preaching. And I teach. I'm going to focus on the saints, and then I'm going to focus on Ephesus and who they were at Ephesus to lay the background for the identity in the next seven sermons. So we are saints together, collectively, as we come together in the body of Christ. What does that mean? Number one, I think, obviously, we have been, have you been made holy? Have you been made holy? When you were saved, what percentage of you was made holy? 
Some want to say, well, you see, being made holy is a gradual process, and you grow in holiness, and that is true, but that suggests to some people that when you were saved that you weren't completely holy. You become more holy. No. When we're saved, we are cleansed completely by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are made holy. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, H-O-L-Y, completely. Now, what happens is, is it possible to be completely holy and then grow in holiness? Yes, partly because we stumble, fall, and we confess our sins. And God strengthens us and re-cleanses us through the blood of Christ. And we grow in that holiness. That's what we call, what's the theological term for that? Sanctification. We are justified when we are saved. Are we partly justified or fully justified? Fully. Are we Partly sanctified or fully sanctified? Fully sanctified. And folks, we grow in sanctification and we also grow in justification. That's my belief. Okay. And not every theological system agrees with me. But that has to do with being saint. We are made holy. A second dimension is that we are what? We are set where? Apart. We're set apart. We're a distinct people. We're a, we are a, 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 a royal nation. We are a we are a holy nation. We're a royal priesthood. We're set apart for what purpose? To declare, proclaim the, the grace of God, which has called us out of darkness into the marvelous light and share our testimony. And then there's a th- third dimension, and it's what I've mentioned. It is when we come together as the body of Christ, the saints that he talks to then, in every instance, Romans, what comes next? Which book's next? First Corinthians? Second Corinthians? Not Galatians. Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. He all calls them saints. Why didn't he call them saints in Galatians? Because he's mad at them. No. <laughs> no, no, there he's talking to a collection of churches. Okay? But whenever he talks to a specific individual church, he calls them saints. Now, the, the folks that were in the churches in Galatia were saints as well. He doesn't address the saints in 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon because he's talking to one person. So a third aspect of this identity is not just being made holy, not just being set apart for a purpose, but it is also collectively to come together and to function as the body of Christ as saints together. So let's talk about, let's go to teaching. Let's talk about these folks in Ephesus and what we're going to be talking about really for the next seven months. Who were they and what was the context? Of course, most of you know that Ephesus was and remains of Ephesus still, are in southwestern, what we would call, which country today? Turkey. Well, actually, it's in western Turkey, on on the south side, next to the Aegean Sea, on the river Salinas, near the Mediterranean coast, which was one of the most important harbors of the day, and it had begun silting up significantly even before the time of Christ, and they had engineered the dredging of the harbor to make it more accessible. Just as you look from the theater that overlooks the the harbor, today it's about a two-mile walk to the sea. It used to be about a a half-mile walk when it was dredged properly. By way of Greek background, as you can see, the Ionian League. They belong to the Ionian League, which, as you see at the next slide, It's hard for you to see from that distance, but maybe online you can see it a little bit better. There was the Aeolian League on the north. There was the Dorian League on the south. Those were families of Greeks. And in the middle, we have then the Ionian League of about 12 cities 
And this region, most of the cities had been founded about a, a millennium and a half before the time of Christ. Some, sometime between 1500 and 1000 BC, most of these cities, as Ephesus had been, had been formed. It, Ephesus, was the cultural center of what we would call Asia. Center of philosophy, center of art, center of learning. And even though we think of this as being Turkish today, and that day, ironically enough, modern days, the enemies, the Greeks and the Turks have been great enemies with each other. It was settled by the Greeks. This was Greek territory. There were many great and famous people that came from Ephesus beforehand, philosophers such as Heraclitus. Do you remember what Heraclitus said was the fundamental element of all of the elements? These were the elemental materialistic philosophers of the 6th century B.C. Thales said it was water. There were others, uh, Aniximander and Aniximenes. They came up with different uh, aspects of nature that they said were fundamental. Air, earth, that sort of thing. What did Heraclitus say it was? Fire. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> everything isn't made of fire, is it? Well, his point was either it, everything either ha is burning, has burned, or has the potential to burn. But you stop and think about it. You stop and think about it. Uh, you know, the Big Bang is not something that we have to be afraid of. The Big Bang is not unscriptural, I believe. The universe had a start about 14 billion years ago, 13.8 billion years ago. And it started with a great instant flash of what? Of fire. A great explosion. So maybe he wasn't so far off. I don't know. Well, he was, a, he was from Ephesus. Of course, it was permeated with pagan influence, pagan religions. The goddess Artemis was the chief goddess of this area. In, uh, in Roman culture, she was Diana. You'll see her depicted as the goddess of the hunt, usually with a hound beside her and a spear in her arms. Here, the depiction is a little bit different. She was the daughter of Zeus, the chief god, and his consort, Nito, and her twin brother was Apollo. In Ephesus, you notice there are multiple, we don't know if those are eggs or breasts or what they were, but they represent what? Fertility. And interestingly enough, Diana, Artemis herself, was supposed to be a virgin goddess. And this was the goddess that was the source of controversy in Acts 19. In Acts 19, Paul has arrived there, and then after he's been there almost two, two and a half years, almost, what happens? There's a great controversy over the silversmiths that make these silver trinkets, miniature idols, in this shape. And because of that conflict with Demetrius later, of course, Paul left Ephesus. The, the city was dominated by pagan temples, the chief of which was the temple to Artemis, where thousands of priests and priestesses ministered. Think about that. A church where not just the congregation, or not a church, the, the, uh, the cult, not just the congregation had thousands, but there were Thousands of priests and priestesses that ministered there. Take a look at a picture of the temple. That, it does not stand today. That's a reconstructed example of the temple. It was built about 550 B.C. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple precincts provided 
sanctuary for people or asylum for people that retreated into it. And it was destroyed in the 4th century, about 356. Greek tradition has it that it was destroyed on the same night that some great military leader was born in uh, Macedonia. Who was it? Alexander the Great. And we don't know whether or not that's exactly right, but that's the tradition. It was destroyed when an arsonist by the name of Herostratus decided to make a name for himself. And because of that, the Ephesian council then proclaimed, once they found out who it was, that his name was never to be mentioned again within the precincts of Ephesus, but we know who it was. It, it was uh, Alexander offered to rebuild the temple, but they were told it was inappropriate because by this time people had begun to divinize Alexander and see him as a god. And they said in Ephesus, no, it is not right for one god to build a temple for another. So they waited until he died, and they started building it after Alexander died. And he, it took about, oh, somewhere between 120 and 220 years to build. What's left of it? That's all that's left. One of the 121 columns of this huge temple that was 200 feet wide, 400 feet long. That, that is one and a third times the length of a football field. And how much wider than a football field that the Cowboys are playing on tonight? Who knows how wide a football field is? 160 feet. I don't know how many yards that is. We can convert it in a moment. But yeah, so it's, it's much, much larger than a football field. Ephesus was also a place where there were many other temples. There were temples to some of the Roman gods and even to the, to the emperor cults. So you can see here in the next slide, this is an example of the temple that was built after the time of Paul, after the time of John, but an example of one of those pagan temples built to the Caesars. It was built to Hadrian. Hadrian, of course, you know, built the wall in northern England, or his, his troops did, Some, somewhere around 140 B.C. The, po the po political connections in Ephesus, uh, between 27 and B.C. and 297 A.D., it was the proconsular province of the Romans' capital in Asia. So you know about the uh, subcontinent there of Asia, which is basically Turkey. It's hard for you to see from that distance. But Asia is on the left bank. It's on the edge of the Aegean. And Ephesus is right on the coast. And it retained its political and mercantile influence during the time of Christ, but then it began to decline in the second and third centuries. In Ephesus, there was a large, what we would call, theater. It was like a, a huge forum. And that looks pretty large, I guess, when you can barely see the people at the bottom. It seated about 25,000 people. It was probably the largest theater in all of the ancient world in its day. And to take a look at the next slide, you can see a bit of the kind of context. You see the people at the bottom. That's the avenue that ran from the bottom of the theater down through the agora, that is the marketplace, and down then to the harbor. You can see, well, you can't even see them, but there are actually people that are sitting up in the theater, and they're so small that they're almost not visible. So it was, it was a huge theater. And then not far from it, there was a stadium. It was about 700 feet long where the athletic games were contested. They had gladiatorial fights. They had uh, chariot races there. And next to it, they have uncovered graves of many gladi uh, gladiators that died in the stadium. 
There was a large bathhouse there that could accommodate a thousand customers at one time. So th this was a large, prosperous, influential, political center, cultural center, philosophic center, which then began to decline in the second, third centuries BC. It was destroyed before the time of Christ in 17 AD by an earthquake, but it was rebuilt during the reign of this emperor who was ruling just right after Christ was born, Tiberius. So what about Ephesus and the gospel? Talked about the city. How did the gospel come to Ephesus as far as we know? Well, when we look at Acts 19, which is the chapter that shows Paul's ministry there, just before that in Acts 18, who was in Ephesus? Apollos was there and also Priscilla and Aquila. So apparently they took the gospel to Ephesus and then later Apollos went to Corinth and we find that uh, Priscilla and Aquila left and Paul was there. He passed through it on the eastbound journey of the second missionary trip. So as he was coming back to Jerusalem, back to Antioch and then Jerusalem. And then he came back to it, and that's when he ministered on his third missionary journey, somewhere around 53 to 57 A.D. He lived there over a couple of years. Exactly how long, we don't know. He was, he was about three months ministering in the synagogue, and then we find that he was there two year, at least two years after it. When he arrived there, he found some disciples. Interestingly enough, how many? There were about 12 of them. But they were not disciples directly of Jesus Christ. They were disciples of whom? John. He asked them, have you received the Holy Spirit? They said, what are you talking about? He said, you need to be baptized. And that was a sign that they had received the Holy Spirit. He rebaptized re them in the name of Jesus. And then he started his ministry in the Jewish synagogue and was there for about three months before he left. And then he withdrew and he taught here. Uh-oh. There we go. Okay. In the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which was also a library, he taught there for about, and he expounded, and he gave a what? A reasoned defense of the gospel in this pagan society, apologetics. He performed many miracles. He encountered seven Jewish prophets, if you will, the sons of Sceva, whom he exercised. There were many magicians who were converted, and you remember they took their books, and what did they do with them? Made a big bonfire out of him. And probably while he was there, well, not probably, while he was there, almost certainly he had to make his living doing what? It doesn't tell us this in Scripture here, but we know that his trade was a what? A tent maker. And he probably did it as you look out from that theater over that, that, uh, that marble street that ran down to the, the harbor in the Agora. He traded and trafficked and and sold his tent ware. That's how he made his living. And we think that he was there probably a little more than uh, 27 months. About 53 or 54, maybe 55, while he was there, he wrote a book, one of the letters, to which church? What comes after Romans? First Corinthians, and he wrote that from Ephesus. And of course then the tumult that arose over the dispute about their undercutting the silver trade of those that made the idols to Ar Artemis, led by Demetrius. It eventually led to him leaving. And we find then that um, he went to the west, went to back 
to the west up into uh, Macedonia, down into Corinth, back up into Macedonia, and he returned back then. Where he didn't go to Mal- he didn't go to Ephesus. He stopped on the very southwestern tip of Asia at Miletus, and he called the the uh, elders of Ephesus to meet with him, and they had a tearful uh, parting. It, it is it is there then where he tells them, as elders of the church, you are to shepherd the flock and you're to oversee it properly. And then he returned to Jerusalem, and he wrote then an epistle to the Ephesians from prison. When was that? We're not sure. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but probably somewhere around 62 A.D. What happened in later uh, New Testament times in Ephesus? According to tradition, well, not according to tradition, according to Scripture, it was one of the seven churches of Asia, of course, and it's the first one that is listed then in chapter 2 that John sends the message from Christ to them. And tradition says that who settled there later? And took care of Jesus' mother, John, the beloved disciple, according to tradition, before he went to the Isle of Patmos. In later church history, we find that the city was destroyed by the invasion of the barbarians in the third century, 262-263 A.D. The Goths attacked it, sacked it. But then when Constantine became emperor, he had much of it rebuilt in the early fourth century. And, in fact... Though it never was um, extremely influential as a theological center, those were Alexandria and Antioch, Ephesus became the place where the third council of all of the bishops came together when they discussed the problem of Nestorianism, the heresy that purportedly said that Christ was two persons, and it dealt with that heresy in 431 B.C., So now we've talked about Ephesus and the background and its history. Let's talk about the book and about authorship. Who wrote Ephesians? Well, it says in uh, in the book that Paul did, and that's what we believe. It's attributed to him in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul identifies himself there as what? An apostle. And here he makes his strongest statement of apostleship in all of his letters. He says his apostleship is by what? The will of God. And this was one of the defining statements that Paul used elsewhere, which is a sign that almost certainly the attribution in verse 1 is accurate. Um, He describes himself in different ways in different gospels, but almost um, in letters, but almost always as an apostle. In other places, he describes himself as a servant. Sometimes he describes himself as a prisoner, but his fundamental identity always as an, as, as an apostle. There are some challenges to Pauline authorship. Modern scholars challenge whether or not Paul wrote Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and especially the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. The reasons for this, in this particular case, is that there are about 90 words that you find in Ephesians that you don't find in any of other Paul's writings. Uh, And you know, it's kind of hard to break down the first chapter into segments to preach it in segments because the sentences are so long. There's one sentence that takes up almost the whole left column of your Bible. The sentences in Ephesians are, are pretty long, some of them, and usually Paul wrote in much shorter phrases. The literary style doesn't seem to be compatible with 
his other letters. The theology, it lacks the Pauline emphasis on justification. It doesn't talk much, as Paul does elsewhere, about the eminence of the parousia. What's the parousia? Or parousia. It's the second coming, and he does this elsewhere. The historical context, too. He speaks to the people in chapter, writes to the people in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and he refers to the foundation of the church already have been, been established on the, the apostles and the prophets, which suggests that maybe this is a later time looking back at the foundation that has already been established in the first generation. So some would say historically it doesn't seem to fit. It talks about equality and unity in the church as though it is already accomplished, and this does not seem to have happened in the first generation. Chapter 2 talks about the Gentiles and the Jews having been brought together. So once again, that suggests to some that this may have been written at a later date. He uses the term ecclesia. What does that mean? Church. He seems to use it in a larger collective sort of identity as almost like a universal church in uh, chapters 1, 3, and 5. And yet that has not occurred in the first generation of apostles. So those people that disagree with Pauline uh, authorship believe that it may have been written by an, a disciple of Paul. And it may have, in fact, been a cover letter under which the rest of Paul's letters were collected and distributed to the churches in the region around Ephesus. I think that there are strong reasons for Pauline authorship. Number one, chapter verse Chapter 1, verse 1 says it. But you also know this, that we don't have the original autograph version of Paul's uh, letter. And there are some that contest whether it is in um, the most genuine of the manuscripts. I believe it is. The, the vocabulary may be a little bit different. But folks, the purpose of the letter is a bit different. Uh, the theological focus is not for Paul, as in Romans, to emphasize justification, as we will see in a moment. So when your focus is different, your language may be a bit different. The, the business about Gentile equality not having been accepted in the first generation, um, in fact, this may not have been as much of a problem in Ephesus. It may have already occurred more easily in Ephesus because there was not a strong, strong Jewish contingent of Judaizers there, as far as we know, who were the legalists that would have opposed it. So maybe it has begun to occur in Ephesus early. And in fact, it may not be Paul saying this has already occurred in Ephesus, as much as he's saying this is the will of God for you. As far as the reference to the universal church, there was already growing a concept of an apostolic church, even in the first century. And it does not mean that Paul is talking about a universal, universal church that's structured and connected with bishops. That had not happened at that time. But apart from the scriptural evidence, probably the strongest evidence is outside scripture. The earliest lists of New Testament books written by the earliest compilers of lists of New Testament books all attribute Pauline authorship. I believe that it is written by Paul. What was the location? Well, Paul, of course, was in Ephesus. What had happened? He had arrived there on his third, second missionary journey sometime probably about 52 AD. And then the next year, about 53, he has returned and he is there for a little more than two years. 
And then after that, of course, uh, he returned to Jerusalem after the third missionary journey. He went to Jerusalem. He was arrested. He was then imprisoned in Caesarea. And he went to Rome. We don't know exactly when that was, but it was somewhere probably about 59 or 60 A.D. You know this because as we preached through the Bible and we dealt with the book of Romans, we mentioned then that there is a dispute on whether he was imprisoned for about four years there and died during the reign of Nero, or whether he was released and there was a second imprisonment. Very likely there were two imprisonments, one from about 59 or 60 to about 62, and that may have been about the time that he wrote then the book of Ephesians, and then a later imprisonment from 62 to 64, and he was put to death during the reign of Nero. So what is Paul's situation? stated in Ephesians. He was in prison. We don't know for certain that it was in prison in Rome because it doesn't say prison in Rome, but we assume that that's where it was. Some would, some say, well, it may have been when he was, for example, earlier in Caesarea. We know that he wrote other letters, other prison epistles, not just Ephesians, but Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, probably all of those written from Rome. Who were the recipients? Well, the non-traditional view would be this. It would be, as you summarize things, it, it could have been to churches around Ephesus with this anonymous writer at a later date, about 90 A.D., who used this as a cover letter for the others. We believe that, in fact, it was written by Paul directly to Ephesus in uh, about 62. The, uh, there are some early Greek manuscripts that leave out Ephesus, in the first two verses. There are three of them. But most of the rest of the early Greek manuscripts mention Ephesus. So what's the purpose? What is the purpose of and the nature and the tone of Ephesians? Well, I've got three purposes that are listed up here, I think. First of all, the very first part of the letter, he encourages the Christians at Ephesus to remember their heritage, to remember their spiritual heritage, the legacy... And it leads to them having fortitude to stand upon that legacy. Secondly, a little bit later in chapter 2 to 3, he talks about proclaiming the unity of the church, the Gentiles and the Christians having come together. And then finally, the rest of the book is mostly about teaching how to live the Christian life. So I would say there are three purposes. Encouragement, unity, and living the Christian life. What's the nature and the tone of the letter that we're going to be looking at? Four things. First of all, it's very positive. I know that's difficult to read from the back. It's very positive. He encourages them. Does he always encourage every church that he writes or group of churches? Most of the time he does. But is there a book where he is not really very encouraging? He chastises them and rebukes them. Not one church, but a group of churches. Where? In, Galatia, in the region of Galatia. This is an encouraging uh, letter. It's a theological letter. Uh, the, the themes are redemption and salvation. And when you come to First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon, those are not so much theological. Those are what? Those are pastoral epistles. It's an instructive letter. It's the technical term would be didactic. It is one that instructs the Christians how to walk, especially new converts to walk the Christian life. And it's devotional. 
It has a kind of calm and meditative tone, and it reminds us that, uh, that we are called not only to follow Christ, but to walk with him. There's a devotional aspect. What about faith? Faith in Ephesians. Well, when you look at, there are three dimensions, I think, in Ephesians. Uh, when you look at Romans, the, the uh, obvious uh, focus of, of, of faith is, faith is not just believing, but faith is obedience. When you look at Galatians, faith is about we are crucified in Christ, and that faith that we have unites us through self-dying with Christ. Well, you have a bit of that in Ephesians. The real focus in Ephesians is on trust. It is a faith that trusts toward righteousness. Secondly, in Ephesians, it, it kind of echoes um, doctrinally, doctrinally some of the things that are uh, spoken about in um, some of the other letters. Faith is also not just a, a, a way that we're made righteous, but faith is used in the context of a doctrine that we believe. So I have faith, that's the dynamic, that's the thing that I do, and I trust, and I am then, because of the grace of God, made righteous. But faith can also be the doctrine that we hold, and we find that really coming out in Romans. It's also in Ephesians. So, for example, we as Baptists, we have a document that we have written, wrote it in 1963, and it's called the Baptist what? Faith and message. And in that respect, there's that dimension of it in Ephesians too. It is a faith that is a doctrinal body of principles. So you see both of those aspects that are similar to Romans and other epistles that are in Ephesians. But there's another dimension of faith here that is brought out in Ephesians that's a little bit different. It's faith as a united community of believers. We're united with Christ, and that is expressed through our unity in the body of Christ. You see, this, this use of the word faith is the righteous that are brought together, faith having justified them, based on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, that is the doctrinal truth, and we believe all those things. But in addition to that, when we use the term faith in Ephesians, it also means that we're a united community of what? Faith. Under the same Lord, in worship and in service, together, it's a community of faith, all following the same pathway. We are saints that have been brought together to be the faith community. So when people ask you, what faith are you? Well, we're Christians, right? We've been redeemed by Christ. We have trusted in him. By his grace, we are redeemed. We also, what faith are we? We might say that, well, we hold these doctrines. Doctrinally, we are Christians. And, and doctrinally, we would go even further. Most of us, not all of us, would say we're, we're Baptists by faith. But also, too, another way of expressing this is that we are a faith community. And that's what he's writing here, too. He's writing to saints in Ephesus that have formed a faith community. So, in chapter 4, verse 5, he speaks about one Lord... One what? Faith and one baptism. And I think there he's talking about not just what we believe, but our identity. I'm not going to go into the organizational structure of the book because we're almost out of time. Let me talk about two last things. I think there's a twofold main theme. Go back one slide. Okay. Binoculars, two. 
I'm sorry about the metaphor, but <laughs> I think it, it, it does. What do binoculars do? They, t- they take two lenses and they bring, to- bring them together in a unified vision. And what is that? That's the subtitle for the sermon today. Uh, to the saints, and it was what? Being unified, the union of all creation in Christ. All of creation is going to be redeemed by Christ, and that's in Romans. But it also speaks about it here. The union of all creation in and under Christ. And that is exhibited through whom? What is his way of communicating that truth to culture? They look at whom? They look at the church, through the church. And so the last couple of verses in chapter 1 express this very well. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things. So you see, everything is united under the authority of Christ. And then he said, and gave them, gave him to the church, you see, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So there, there is a, a, a twofold message here. Yes, we come under his authority and all creation eventually will proclaim him Lord. Today, he expresses that through the image, the action, the ministry of the church. And then finally, there's some other, there some other themes, just very quickly. Not just unity under Christ, not just the church, but also redemption in Christ. God's mystery in the way he has unified Gentiles and Jews who were at enmity with each other. He encourages us, not based on the strength that we have, but he encourages us based on the power of God that resides in his body. He teaches how to live ethically as Christians. He talks about the mystical union of Christ and the church. And he does that by talking about what? Marriage. He uses that analogy. And then he finally closes the book and talks about put on the what? The armor, the armor of God, because we are involved, not in supernatural warfare, we're involved in what kind of warfare? Spiritual warfare. Supernatural warfare suggests that Satan and God are equal, you know, in the battle. No, God is supernatural, and he calls us to engage in spiritual warfare. So, last slide. We are going to work through, then, these segments over the next seven months. The first one is, and we're talking about our identity in Christ tonight and for the next seven weeks, we are the church, we are the saints of God, and there are going to be other aspects, there are going to be other dimensions, there are going to be other facets of that jewel that we're going to be talking about over the next seven weeks. We are, in fact, in chapters 2 through the middle of chapter 3, a masterpiece in the making. And then in chapter 4, the beginning of it, we will talk about being equipped for the work of ministry. And that's where he talks about, in addition to other things, he talks about the gifts that he has given to the church, just as he did in Romans and as he did in 1 Corinthians. Then he talks, calls us to walk worthy of the calling. That'll be the next section. Next to the last section, the household code. The, what is it to, 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 to live and to manage and to, and to uh, uh, minister in a godly home? Husband and wife, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And that has to do with where? The godly home reaching into what? Into the workplace. And then finally, the spiritual warfare where we put on the armor of God. 
For those of you that are watching online, I would like to encourage you to be back next week, and those of you that are here, as we look at the identity, identity of Christ and contemplate this. Has God called you as a saint to minister on the behalf of Jesus Christ? I pray that that is your identity, and I pray that you have a local church that you call home. We love the fact that you join us online. At the same time, what he wants you to do is to be engaged in a local church, a body of believers that have been called together as saints that are sanctified, that are set apart for a purpose, and are called into the world to be what? Something like chaplains? Are all chaplains saints? I hope they are. Are all saints chaplains? You might have thought when you walked in here tonight that you weren't, but I believe you are. You go into a pluralistic setting, which is very tough that is relativistic, that doesn't want to hear about the gospel. And he calls you to be salt and light in that pluralistic setting, wherever you may go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Paul's message to the Ephesians. And I pray over the next few months as you teach us not only who we are, but how you're working through us to make us masterpieces in your kingdom. As you equip us for ministry, that we will walk worthily that our homes will be godly, and wherever we go in the workplace, we will take that godly influence. And remember that we must put on the armor of God, for we are at war with spiritual forces, and only you are more powerful than them. May we put on your armor as we go into battle tomorrow. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.